Hi, listeners. A quick note that since we recorded this conversation last week, a few things have happened. For one, the editorial board of the Harvard Crimson, the university student newspaper, published an unsigned editorial endorsing the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, BDS. The editorial board had previously resisted the BDS call, saying that it lacked nuance, but now they say that they were convinced by, quote, the weight of this moment, of Israel's human rights and international law violations, and of Palestine's cry for freedom, end quote. One of the editorial chairs, Orly Marini Rappaport, made explicit reference to her Jewish identity in a tweet sharing the editorial and is facing harsh backlash online. Over the weekend, Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt gave a speech at the organization's annual National Leadership Summit, condemning Palestine solidarity organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace and the campus group Students for Justice in Palestine as, quote, extremists, akin to white nationalist groups on the right. We taped this episode early last week and so didn't have the chance to comment on these events directly, but we think our discussion of the broader dynamics of Israel-Palestine activism on campus still applies. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to On the Nose, a Jewish Currents podcast. I'm your host today, Arielle Angel. I'm the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents, and I'm joined by Mari Cohen, our assistant editor, Josh Leifer, our contributing editor, and Dylan Saba, our JC fellow, but who is kind of wearing two hats today on this particular podcast as he also works part-time at Palestine Legal and is the lawyer in some of the cases that we're going to talk about today. So if that didn't give it away, we are talking about campuses today. I wanted to do this podcast because when we were brainstorming what to do for the podcast this week, I had just received a foreword from my mother. And in the body, this is like something that all Jewish millennials dread, which is the foreword of Barry Weiss's Substack in your inbox that has been like forwarded like to hundreds of boomers so far. And you're the most recent recipient. And with my mom, it's usually like half a line that's kind of like thoughts or what do you think about this? Or, you know, kind of implicitly asking me to defend against everything that Barry Weiss is accusing. So the most recent Substack was not written by Barry Weiss. It was written by a student named Tal Fort Gang about a recent kerfuffle at New York University. And I will let Dylan kind of tell us a little bit about what happened there. Thanks, Ari. I'll, I'll just say that as a lawyer, it's also something you don't want to receive in your in your email inboxes, <laughs> Barry Weiss Substack. So I can talk about what's going on at NYU, but but first I think I'll, you know, it might be helpful for me just to share kind of more of like a bird's eye view of what I see happening on campuses from kind of my position as a staff attorney at Palestine Legal, because, uh, you know, we're a legal nonprofit that represents Palestine solidarity activists and Palestinians um, in the United States who are facing repression uh, for their political expression generally. And a large percentage, you know, most of what we cover are these campus issues. And I think that the reason why there are so many campus issues um, is because you have basically a population of like young college age people in the U.S. 
who are generally pretty open to the idea of Palestinian liberation and open to organizing in support of that. It's 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 not quite so controversial for you know for a lot of these students, which makes sense given you know this sort of larger zeitgeist movement connections you know within like the the, the two recent waves of, of of BLM and whatnot. But the other thing that you have on campus are well-financed and politically powerful Jewish institutions that are, for the most part, Zionist. So, you know, I'm thinking of the Brandeis Center uh, and, and Hillel. There is, of course, tension between organized Zionists on campus and pro-Palestinian activists. These spill over, basically, beyond the individual campus when outside organizations, in coordination with some of the Zionist groups on campus, put a spotlight on student activism. There's a sense that like, you know, you got the pro-Palestine national orgs and the, and the pro-Israel national orgs, and, and they're kind of duking it out over things that are happening on campus. That's generally not what's going on. What's going on is some students take some action. Some people get, you know, offended and basically start making public demands for repression. They start making public demands that the university itself come down hard on those students. And then organizations like Palestine Legal and a couple of other groups get involved in a defensive posture. We're trying to basically prevent administrations from repressing the, the political speech of these groups. The ability of, of Zionists to express themselves on campus is, is very rarely at issue, almost never. So th- those are kind of the, you know, the dynamics that we see playing out in the situation at NYU. Like I can kind of briefly recount what happened factually, which is that in response to some attacks in, in, in Tel Aviv a couple of weeks ago, some Zionists on campus put out a message to a school-wide discussion forum, kind of blatantly condemning Palestinian terror and talking about how Israel faces, you know, more violence, more hatred, more delegitimization than than almost anyone else. So unsurprisingly, the SJP on campus is the, is at NYU Law School, so it's an LSJP, Law Students for Justice in Palestine, put out a statement also in the, in the discussion forum, basically saying, you know, we reject this framing and reframing it along the lines that, that they believe, you know, opposing the occupation, supporting Palestinians' uh, right to resist their, their illegal occupation and, and, and what have you. And then Zionists at the school started saying, look, oh, these students are supporting terrorism, blah, 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 and demanding that they retract the statement or apologize. And people leaked it to press outlets. So you immediately started having articles running in Reason and some other right-wing press outfits basically saying like the school needs to punish these students. Some of the outlets immediately surfaced this settlement that NYU had entered into the university, not the law school, with the Office of Civil Rights relating to you know a, a, a civil rights claim uh, that was filed by a Zionist student a couple of years ago. In the settlement, New York University agreed to adopt the text of the IRA definition, although they didn't adopt the, the examples. Of course, we're talking about the the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, which is a controversial definition because some of the examples conflate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, just as an aside. That's right. So someone who's pitching these outlets basically was saying, hey, you know, there was this settlement, use it to say that the school needs to come down hard on, on these students. Also, like these students, a number of them have named scholarships. And some of these articles were saying, like, how could you give this scholarship um, to these students? Like, we need to ensure that people who say things like this should never get the scholarship again. 
which is like a classic tactic, basically. Something that we see across you know, Zionist organizations. Canary Mission does this all the time. StopAntisemitism.org does this all the time. They basically try and leverage whatever they can in these individuals' lives to try and basically raise the stakes and, and just raise the price of, of pro-Palestine expression. So you, you know, because of the dynamics I was talking about before, you, you end up in these like kind of bizarre situations where the university is not even really responding to what could be perceived as a live conflict on campus, but they're responding to press attention. So like you'll see in the NYU case, like immediately, you know, a couple of days later, the president of the university issues this statement condemning the anti-Semitism of, of these students. By the way, of the six people who basically wrote this letter in this forum, three of them are Jewish. I don't think the, the president of NYU is is Jewish, but it doesn't matter for these organizations because they're just hammering this line, you know, that any kind of pro-Palestine expression that like, in their words, like crosses over, you know, where this line that is, it is crossed over, like is just totally mysterious. Like, it seems like it's just whatever is beyond their criticism of Israel or something. But yeah, you get these bizarre situations where the administration is just totally responding to outside pressures and is not, is not actually adjudicating issues on campus and is not responding to real campus concerns. They're responding to PR concerns that are are drummed up by these organizations. Well, so I want to break it down a little bit even further. A few years ago, a reporter for The Forward, who's no longer The Forward, Josh Nathan Kazis, did a lot of reporting related to outside pro-Israel groups on campus and kind of like the enormous amount of resources that that were pouring into these groups and also the tactics that they were using. Like you mentioned Canary Mission, which is a site that creates profiles on activists, pro-Palestinian activists, that essentially functions as a blacklist to get students fired from future jobs or get them kind of out of the running for scholarships or one thing or another. We did an interview with Josh Nathan Kazis at the time on some of that reporting and a lot of what he was really struck by is is exactly what you were talking about, the idea that it's not like students necessarily were asking for this kind of support from the Jewish establishment. It really does seem like there's a a kind of opposite motion here where pro-Israel groups have basically realized that the campus is kind of a site of this debate and and a really potent one and have really invested just a ton of resources into making sure that the spotlight is there, that they can, you know, on one hand, that they can bring sort of these, these cases, which often don't go through, although slowly with like the adoption of IHRA, they have more teeth than they did in the past. I think they used to be more sort of toothless on the whole. And then on the other hand, to sort of like whip up this sentiment among, among Jewish students that might otherwise have sort of fallen by the wayside. So the reason I I wanted to put that out there is that we report on this a lot and we report on this dynamic on campus and off campus. Like Isaac Scher wrote a piece for us last year about the LA Teachers Union and the way in which outside pro-Israel groups came in to the LA Teachers Union and sort of organized them in a particular way to defeat a kind of pro-BDS measure within the union. And often the the criticism of a piece that we are reporting on this sort of thing, like I, I think reliably Yehuda Kurtzer from the Shalom Hartman Institute will jump in on Twitter and basically say, what is the big deal here? You are complaining essentially about a group that is just sort of more organized and has more money. Like what is the big deal about that? 
And so I wanted to pose that question to the group. I know, Josh, like you've been thinking about this a bit as the only one of us who is now currently on a campus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Yehuda and I got into this argument on, on Twitter and full disclosure, I'm in a Hartman affiliated <laughs> workshop right now. And I, you know, Yehuda is a teacher and I, I, I value his, his teaching. We have fundamental axiomatic disagreements about politics, which sometimes we express in public. I mean, I think what I was trying to get at in that conversation was that specifically on campus, as Dylan said, for the most part, Jewish students are not paying that much attention to what the politics of this issue happen to be. I think that's borne out sort of ironically in that AJC poll that came out, which is like most Jewish students seem to basically not be affected by the like, quote unquote, alleged rampant anti-Israel sentiment on college campuses. And some campuses are different. You know, there are some campuses that are highly politicized where political strife is a day-to-day element of campus life. But I think that's not true for most students. I mean, they go to class, they get drunk, they go to parties, they live their lives, they try to get jobs and finance and consulting. Like we have to think a little bit more about like the median Jewish student on this campus who's not someone inclined towards activism. And I think that's just borne out in in the survey data. Sorry, I just want to back up so you could say what this survey is really quickly. Yeah. So I guess this this was published very recently, but the AJC put out a survey. It's a survey of millennial Jews. It's pretty interesting because like, whatever, I don't know the methodology, but we're, let's just assume as a heuristic that the AJC has a certain predisposition towards certain kinds of results. And so that the survey revealed what it did, I think is very striking, which is in some sense, empirical proof that the narrative that they've tried to put forward is not actually true. They asked a lot of questions about the campus in particular and whether campus activism around Palestine was changing the way that people thought about themselves as Jews or like making them feel less safe or making them feel less eager to be Jewish in public or any of these things. And the answers like overall were basically no. Yeah, I think if you like look, for example, at some of these questions, like whether people said that they rethought their commitment to Israel because of the anti-Israel climate or whether it damaged their relationships, the result was maybe one in four or one in five thought that it did so. And then, you know, you would get even like 10% around that for each question saying they don't even think there's an anti-Israel climate on campus. And then a vast plurality, around 40% saying, no, this hasn't been like an issue for them. Apparently, it's like relatively sound sampling methodology that they used. I think that there has been conversation about the fact that these questions were like pretty leading. I mean, they're not questions that are like, what do you think of the Israel climate? They're like, has the anti-Israel climate made you hide your identity? And so they are questions that sort of make people push people in a certain direction. And so I do think it's true that, as Josh says, that sense of alarm didn't take for most of the students in the survey. And, you know, we could say, obviously, like, if one in four and one in five Jewish students has strong feelings about this, like, maybe that's something something to think about. And maybe a little bit later, we can talk about what we do about, like, the Jewish students who do feel mobilized around this in that way. But I do think that, like, if we just think about all the resources, all the time, all the alarm from these Jewish organizations that goes into college campuses, you know, anti-Zionism on college campuses, the students, they're facing constant anti-Semitism. I mean, you know, Barry Weiss titles, like, everyone hates the Jews, and then referring to the campus. I mean, it really is striking to think about how that contrasts with the actual data and what people are feeling. Yeah, I, I, you know, obviously, like, there are clearly Jewish students who who feel challenged by pro-Palestine activism. I mean, I know people from where I grew up who are uncomfortable with the word Palestine. That does not mean that 
the grievance is necessarily legitimate. But I think, and Dylan was getting at this too, I think it needs to be like reiterated the extent to which the campus is a site of intensive Israel advocacy organizing with a huge range of groups. I mean, it's not, it's not even just Hillel. I mean, Hillel's houses have within them usually a Jewish agency fellow who is sent by the Israeli government to organize Israel advocacy programming. A.E. Pai is a Jewish fraternity, is part of one of the Israel advocacy networks, I think the Maccabee task force, and receives funding through that. There's Mosaic, there's Stand With Us. Exactly. I mean, there's a huge plethora of groups. I'll just say that Isaac Scher reported on something that happened at Princeton where they were trying to get the campus to stop using Caterpillar machinery in their campus renovations and construction because of their involvement in home demolitions and stuff like that in in Palestine. And he found in the course of doing this, another group that turned out to just be a shell group for Stand With Us. We encounter this in our reporting all the time where there's just like another group with another name that if you just look into it for 10 seconds, it's actually another pro-Israel group that you know about, but they're for some reason trying to kind of make it seem like there are more grassroots groups than there actually are. And sometimes if you get far enough under those groups, you get money from the Israeli government and the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. Right. Certainly more so when the ministry was functioning. I mean, I, I think it's it's probably less now. And I and, and you know, I think what I was trying to get at in the in the Twitter argument with with Yehuda was that there is no comparable infrastructure for pro-Palestine groups or BDS supporting groups. And the contrast is also striking even more so in that like sometimes the the SJP chapters are affiliated with not, you know, some nominal national organization. Maybe it's SJP, maybe it's JVP. Oftentimes they're not. In the Princeton's case, the Princeton Committee on Palestine is its own thing. I mean, I, full disclosure, was a member of that as an undergrad when we ran a divestment resolution in 2015. And it narrowly failed. But the same dynamic kind of happened where all of a sudden, what was an argument between different small groups of activist students, basically independent of the rest of the campus, ended up overnight, basically, becoming a national media issue. And and the last thing I was trying to get at when I was talking with Yehuda was that I think this is bad for Jewish students, because most Jewish students who are not paying attention are like, whatever, this has nothing to do with me. I'm focused on other things. Then they're told that they should interpret this referendum that their friends maybe are involved with as a direct attack on them. They're not experiencing it as an attack on them. Usually some are obviously it's going over their heads. It's not part of their general day to day. And then the Hillel puts out a statement saying all Jewish students are under attack by this. And once that rhetoric of threat gets raised, then you do begin to have an uncomfortable campus climate. Yeah, I just think what I kind of see there and maybe sort of resonates with kind of my experience, um, you know, I'm five years out from graduation now from undergrad, but, you know, when I was on a college campus and just watching a lot of these types of dynamics also in the social justice world is like, also, it seems like, you know, it's likely there's like a population of Jewish students that might feel like, you know, maybe like a little bit uncomfortable because they grew up in a Zionist background, you know, some of the stuff that's being talked about is stuff that maybe their parents believe or that are, you know, was espoused at synagogues or programs they went to growing up. And so they're not totally sure what to make of maybe Palestinian solidarity advocacy. Some of them are, some of them are involved in it. Some of them are doing the resolution. Some of them might not be sure what to make of it, feel a little bit uncomfortable, but like, you know, not really care that much, but just sort of like register a sense of discomfort, which to me, I mean, discomfort is kind of part of life. Uh, It can be very challenging. It's not the same thing as oppression. And sometimes if you're a person from a privileged background who starts to get involved in a lot of social justice work, you are going to experience discomfort. And that is 
part of the experience. But, you know, maybe these students are a little bit uncomfortable and then something comes out from an organization that says, you know, what you're experiencing is anti-Semitism and this isn't okay. And, you know, I imagine that probably feels validating, right? Because suddenly it's not like this discomfort is something that I need to like root around in. It's more like, oh, this discomfort is because I was wronged and I don't have to worry that I'm, you know, that I need to think about it differently. And so I can imagine that things feed off each other. And the other thing I'll just note is that I found it very striking that in your exchange with Yehuda, Josh, that, you know, he was kind of expressing this idea that there was this like equal pro-Palestine infrastructure on the other side, just because the situation is in fact so different. But that does kind of resonate with like the type of rhetoric and propaganda that goes around this alarmism around college campuses, which is that there's this idea that there's this like major organized threat to Jewish students. I don't know, maybe they say it's from SJP or JVP, which are like talked about as these like major, really powerful groups or like the Middle East Studies Association is a frequent antagonist. And so it really kind of reflects the way in this discourse has been shaped with power dynamics never really being appropriately registered in the conversation, which, you know, is similar to the way that Israel-Palestine in general is talked about a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I just I just want to say that I'm flattered that anyone would suggest that like Palestine Legal and the handful of other basically defensive nonprofits are are operating at the level as some of these like massive, incredibly well-funded organizations. I mean, even at the level of SJP, like SJP National is not, they're not like the command center for these student organizations. They're basically a group of volunteer people who like help SJPs like problem solve. <laughs> these are basically all independent, non-hierarchical student groups who are volunteering their time to like do this kind of political organizing. It's like pretty absurd. I mean, it's basically just a fantasy, like this idea that like somehow like big Palestine is like out here pulling the strings behind these actions. The other thing is that like the idea that it's simply a question of like one side is better organized, so what? That framing is totally missing what's going on here. Every Palestinian knows that the other side is like better organized, better finance, has more institutional connections. That's not the basis of the complaint here. It's that when these issues come up, it's because some group of pro-Palestine students has taken some action. And then the other side here is not putting on some counter program or putting on a barbecue or whatever, or whatever it is that these groups do. That all is fine. It's that they're going to the media and running to the administration and saying, this group of students who is organizing around some kind of political goal is a threat to our existence and basically needs to be handled. And they're able to get away with it because of how minimal the pro-Palestine infrastructure is, because we just don't have the capacity to speak to the same audiences and, and pull at the same levers of power. And so what you have then is university administrators faced with this imbalance. And here's something that I really perceive from the inside, which is that the vast majority of times, it's not university administrators making a political decision against you know, the anti-Zionists. It's university administrators making rational decisions about what is best for the university and what is best for the university on a public relations front. 
You know, this happened in NYU, this happened in Tufts, which we can talk about as well. The university will get a bunch of public criticism or, or calls for them to punish some students or condemn some student action or condemn some student organizing or disavow some student statement or something. And the university turns immediately to the press and releases a statement without ever addressing it with the students. Not even to have a conversation and say, what did you mean by this? And, and certainly not to say, hey, it looks like you guys are getting a lot of hate here. You, you know, are you all okay? Have you received any kind of like harassment or something? What can we do to make sure that, that you all are protected? The reason why the power imbalance is relevant is it because it makes it such an easy choice for school administrators on who to side with when it comes to facing the public. There's, there's the PR element, and then there's also the free speech element, especially at public universities where this is happening. And, and it's about the Israel advocacy world's attempt to make Palestine solidarity activism on campus beyond the pale of legality, not just acceptability. The other thing I just wanted to say is like I've spent a lot of time thinking about what Yehuda was saying in the thread. I wanted to take seriously what he meant when he said that there is another side. And I think what it was occurring to me there is and, and this strikes me as the way in which the anti-BDS campaigns have ended up being structurally similar to the anti-CRT campaigns that are happening in schools and on campuses as well, which is that you have a shifting hegemony. And a hegemony is like, it's intangible. There's no one singular cause. Young people generally are becoming more ready to hear about Palestinian liberation. That's as a multi-causal factor. And so Israel advocacy groups are now faced with that shift. And they are basically deciding to turn the campus into a battlefield because they can't accept this shifting hegemony. And one of the questions that I, that I imagine they are trying to figure out themselves is how far are they willing to go to shut things down? What degree of intervention on the campus? What degree of legal wrangling? I mean, I think the Trump administration's executive order about anti-Semitism and what Ken Marcus was doing when he was part of the civil rights department of the education department, that was sort of the cutting edge of trying to bring down the force of the state to stop what is a shift in public opinion. And that's where like the illiberalism of it comes from. And that's why I think we'll only see going forward more of a coordination between some of the anti-CRT organizing and the anti-BDS organizing. On Princeton's campus, I will say, one of the things that struck me is that the conservative group that's quoted in Isaac's amazing reporting, the Open Campus Coalition, was not formed as an anti-BDS group, but was formed in 2015 or 14 during the protests against Woodrow Wilson. It's a conservative anti-Black Lives Matter organization that's now wrapped up in the Israel advocacy anti-BDS campus ecosystem. And I think that's emblematic of a shift that's happening across other places too. Yeah, I want to I want to give Dylan you a chance to also like say in what ways these different attempts have been more or less successful legally or like to what extent they've become more enforceable on that level. But first I I guess like I just want to underline the point that you just made, Josh. I mean, look, I do think that the Jewish establishment does believe that this is existential for them. I, you know, I mean, I think they're hysterical, but they do actually think on some level that like this changing hegemony threatens Israel, you know, which threatens Jews, period. I mean, like, that's why they're doing this, right? And I feel like if you are starting from that position, then it's sort of like, well, why wouldn't we use the resources available to us to do that? Like, if this is our position to start with, aren't we justified in using everything that we can 
to go at it? And like, wouldn't the other side avail themselves of that if, if they had the opportunity? And I think like, on the one hand, they're sort of right about that, right? I mean, if you believe that something is right, then like, politically, you kind of have a responsibility to advocate for it in, in the most effective way that you can. I mean, like, no one can say that they are not effective on some level at what they are trying to do. I think that where it becomes strange is that not all of these people, but I think a lot of the people, certainly the people who are like forwarding the Barry Weiss substack or whatever, like the people at my mother's network or whatever, are people who I think are relatively politically sophisticated about the question that money in politics presents and, and the question about democracy when certain very well-resourced groups come in to change a conversation in a way that is, what is the word that I'm looking for? It's like distorting. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of the people who send this are basically dyed in the wool liberals who are concerned about free speech. They're concerned about democracy. They want a level playing field on some level. And I'm not like hopeful about the ability to stop like a stand with us or whatever, but I wish it was easier to talk to the people who are kind of giving this oxygen and the particularly people who haven't been on campuses in 30, 40 years, who seem the most kind of like agitated around this to recognize the ways in which they are sort of falling prey to a very like anti-democratic and and anti-free speech apparatus here. Yeah. Well, one thing I think is interesting about this, you know, theoretical pushback that those supporting these pro-Israel organizations could make saying, well, of course, like this is what you think is right. And if you had the money and power, wouldn't you do that too? The thing is, if the other side had the money and power, we wouldn't be in this situation. I mean, this, I mean, I think that's sort of what gets lost in this is that like, this is like a question of power all the way down. And the reason that these tactics are being used and that these campaigns are being run is in a response to this lack of material power, both in Israel, like in terms of the dynamics of who has state power and control and sovereignty, and in the U.S. in terms of who can control political ability to um, influence U.S. policy on Israel. And it's something I think about a lot and that I think we've all talked about, which is something I also notice in a lot of the anti-wokeism discourse, is that there's this misapprehension or misunderstanding of the division between like cultural power and changing hegemony, as Josh mentions, versus actual state material power, in which a lot of people, including maybe liberals who feel a little bit like caught between multiple sides, they say, oh, well, like suddenly these really far left and, you know, pro-Palestine and like defund the police and people are taking over and they have all this power and like anti-Semitism is not being recognized in the same way. But like the thing that they're pointing to is a certain type of like cultural uh, recognition, especially maybe under like the young left, but it's not a material recognition or actual like, you know, controls of the levers of power most of the time. I think that's right. And I also, in a kind of cheeky way, think that that framing is, Ariel, as you were describing, it is correct. It is not the target of Palestine organizing to persuade these Zionist organizations not to do what they're doing. The target is everyone else. It's to convince everyone else that this is worth opposing and that there are actions of solidarity to build on. And that, that is what the movement is trying to do. And I actually think that that's mutually recognized. You know, something that becomes apparent in like seeing how these things play out is as soon as the bilateral framework is transcended, as soon as this is no longer a conversation between a group of very powerful and institutionally backed 
Zionist groups and a small set of groups who are agitating for Palestine, that's when things go nuclear, basically. For example, in, in NYU, you know, a precipitating thing that happened as this played out was it wasn't just that some pro-Palestine students issued a statement. It's that their statement was co-signed by all of these solidarity, all of these affinity groups on campus. So all of these groups representing people of different identities with kind of like broadly like social justice framings signed this statement. And that's really what set people off. And that's what broke the frame of this kind of power imbalance. And on Tufts campus, there's been a, a huge fur of activity. Full disclosure here, I attended Tufts as an undergraduate. The SJP there was formed in the in the year before I attended and grew massively in the, in the time that I was there. And it's basically been a hot conflict ever since. It was in 2020 that the Tufts SJP organized this campaign around the Stop the Deadly Exchange, which targets police exchanges with the Israeli military. Tufts University Police was involved in one of these exchanges. And basically, you know, a number of people have organized around, you know, trying to oppose this, principally JVP. And in their organizing, the Tufts SJP formed a massive coalition with climate groups, with affinity groups. And it was so successful that they actually won an award from their Office of Campus Life for how well they, they coalition built around this. And that's the event that set everything off. There were calls for the university to condemn this award. And that's when you started seeing like all of this heightened scrutiny. So I think there's actual real insight in this observation of like, look, what are we supposed to do? We are playing our role here as advocates on this side. And you better play your role as advocates on that side and not break that frame and not do anything to try and get around the power imbalances that are baked in here. Because those power imbalances are what cement a status quo that maintains Zionist hegemony and keeps Palestinians in you know perpetual persecution. I mean, I will say among the major changes that have happened in like campus political culture over the last, let's say, five to seven years, one of them is that Palestine solidarity has been incorporated much more fully into the broad spectrum social justice world under the banner of sometimes of inter intersectionality. In 2015, it was certainly not a given. And in fact, one of the things that some of the Zionist advocacy groups were doing quite well, at least on the campus that I was at, was having a kind of ongoing dialogue with the leaders of some of the minority groups. They would go on trips to, to Israel. I mean, I think those trips still happen. Yeah, the Maccabee Task Force does like a trip aimed particularly at campus leaders from, you know, minority groups. I think that work is clearly becoming less effective. Like those trips, people, I, I've spoken to some of them who feel uncomfortable when they're asked to go on them and things like that. I mean, so that's, that I think is a major change. And, and obviously the George Floyd protests and then the war last May, I think has catalyzed a really major narrative shift in, in how young people are thinking about this. So it's not surprising that some of the Israel advocacy groups on campus are pretty freaked out. I want to think about the Zionists for a second. God knows nobody thinks about them. We have to do it. It's we have to do it. <laughs> Look, some of us were once Zionists, so we can think to our past selves. I just want to, I have Barry Weiss's Substack open in front of me. And, and just thinking again about my mom who sent this to me. My mom actually, it's interesting. Many of you know that I have talked before about the fact that my mom has actually really moved on Israel over the past couple of years. So in this situation, I was being a little disingenuous because she sent this because it was being sent to her. And she was like, tell me how to 
tell me how to respond. Give me the talking points to disprove this. But she knows enough to know at this point that it's off. But she is rattled by some of the things that appear here. So for example, I'm just going to read some of the things that Mr. Fortgang pulled out. So they talk about the Zionist grip on the media, for example, or a classmate apparently tweeted, quote, my love language is Marg Bar Israel, death to Israel. Or here's a good one. Zionism is a racist, imperialist, white supremacist ideology, not a religious movement. And Israelis sense of victimhood is delusional because Israel colonized Palestinian land. So some of these hit differently. And I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a student who really like hears these things, feels uncomfortable and like feels attacked. And I wondered if we could think about what is to be done there, right? Like I, I think my orientation is to look at these students and think like, we're not going to get anywhere just by being like, fuck you babies or whatever, you know, although like we could go that route. And I certainly don't expect Palestinians to be the ones to do that emotional labor. But I do like wonder what you do with these students. I mean, I'll be frank, like some of those statements make me uncomfortable. I have the ideological front loaded equipment. I understand why a student who's maybe Palestinian would say things that are offensive to me as a Jew. I think that's some of like the relational work that has to be done. I mean, I, I think some of this gets to the legitimacy of armed resistance to the occupation is, a, is, is kind of an underlying issue at the bottom of this. That's where like often the, the most difficult kinds of conversations are happening, which is that broadly speaking, the Palestine Solidarity Groups will say it is totally legitimate for a people under occupation to resist militarily the military occupation that they're subjected to. In America, and certainly in American Jewish communities, the norm is that there is no form of Palestinian violence that's acceptable. Israeli state violence is justified as defensive, but there is no form of armed Palestinian resistance that is legitimate. The expectation, the demand put on Palestinians by Anglophone common sense is that they must be Gandhians in order to deserve rights. And no matter the Gandhians among them and the fact that they're languishing in prisons and administrative detention or whatever, that doesn't matter either. <laughs> or no matter the uh, worldwide nonviolent uh, resistance campaign of boycott, divestment and sanctions. But that's a very difficult conversation to have. Let's just remind ourselves too that these are conversations that are happening between students. I think students are wonderful, but they're also like steeped in internet culture. They're not like necessarily like expressing themselves thinking like I'm writing an article or whatever, like putting a tweet on the same level as like a written statement or anything like that is in itself disingenuous. But but it does feel like they're really talking about two different things. Mari, you just wrote a great piece on Deborah Lipstadt and thinking about how she thinks that like talking about the right of return is anti-Semitic because you're calling for the end of, of Israel as a Jewish state or whatever, and, and a Jewish state in itself, like the, the Israel's right to exist or whatever, it cannot be challenged on, on anti-Semitic lines. I mean, basically, like we know the, I, I feel like this is so obvious, I say it all the time, but it really is worth remembering that, that these are students who came up in, in an environment where there is no separation between Zionist identity and, and Jewishness. Zionism is the primary identity, even within Jewishness for many of them. I, I mean, like the question is, where's the way out of that for them? Do you know what I mean? It's like, do I think like death to Israel is the best political rallying cry <laughs> strategically and otherwise? Like, no. But like, I think that emotionally, 
you have to give these kids an off-ramp because you know that what they're hearing is deaf to Jews. There's no, there's no separation. And then I just feel like, like the marginalization that they feel like, Mari, what did you mention? Where was this that happened at the Hillel? Yeah, at American University, for example, the Muslim Students Association was co-sponsoring a Seder. I think it started between like a Muslim and Jewish student uh, doing it together, like an interfaith Seder. And then they found out that like Hillel was like co-sponsoring it or funding it. And so the MSA cut ties because they were like, you know, Hillel has policies that involve supporting Israel. Yeah, and, and, and Hillel takes money from pro-Israel groups. They have very clear red lines around who they partner with. They don't allow JVP students and they don't partner with like anti-Zionists very openly. But I think like there is a way in which for a student who is not very politically sophisticated, they just feel marginalized. I mean, I would add an element to it. And this gets back to actually, I think what we must have spoken about on a podcast, like maybe even a year ago about the engagement gap between Jewish students. Like on the one hand, yeah, you have the, this, these students who's, who are feeling, I mean, this in like the generous say, like very attacked by pro-Palestine rhetoric because they feel like their identities are coupled to Zionism. You also have an also sizable population of Jewish students who are involved in Palestine solidarity activism yeah. or were yeah. involved. And so in some ways, the campus fight is also an intra-Jewish fight. Yeah. And at the same time, the still most Jewish students on campus are not engaged. They're not members of either of these groups. And they don't even, you know, like if you talk to Hillel directors at universities, they'll be like, a very small fraction of the large Jewish population on these campuses attend things, do things. They're not involved. And so in some ways, the like apathetic mass is even more of a problem in trying to figure out how to negotiate this because these politics are kind of operating detached. Neither of these groups are like really making, you know, majoritarian claims or can count on a reliable majority of the community to rally behind them. Yeah, I guess like all I'm trying to say is like in order to like break down every one of the statements in the Barry Weiss substack or whatever, like some of the things that I just read for my mother, for example, I would have to have a conversation, a very difficult conversation about like some of the things that you were talking about, Josh, like about violence, about settler colonialism, about why you don't need people to be like perfect victims or whatever, like, you know, about tone policing, about some, you know, all of these kinds of things. And you're not dealing with a very sophisticated populace on this, you know, like the amount of of political education that is necessary is really significant. I do think there is a sense in which like the need for sophistication is also present on the other end. Like I sometimes wish that there was a national organizing infrastructure for Palestine solidarity activism to say like, do not tweet these things. Do not do this. You were held to a higher standard than the other groups. And every single thing that you say on social media is going to be used against you. And there has to be a kind of like super enforced message discipline because otherwise any slip is going to get weaponized. And I think that's not taken seriously enough or it's like this is civility and it's tone policing and it's bullshit and so I shouldn't have to abide by it. That's fine as like a normative argument. Like I agree, you shouldn't have to abide by it. We don't live in that world. I mean, this is some of the stuff that came up when I was doing reporting on Corbin where there's a sense that there should be no consequences for the things that I say because the standards to which I'm being held are bullshit. But like you are also fighting a strategic political campaign. And if one wants to achieve one's goals, one ought to orient one's behavior around achieving those goals. One thing I'll add here, and you know, it's not that I disagree with you, Josh, but I do think that the objective of the Palestine Solidarity Movement is like not to convince Ariel's mom that they're worth supporting. 
part of what I was saying earlier is that we actually lose when the framing is anti-Zionist versus Zionist. And we win when we build a larger coalition out of all of these apathetic people, all of these people who are not involved. And at the end of the day, it's true. You say some controversial stuff on social media, Zionists are going to jump on it, and they're going to have an easier time jumping on something that's more controversial than they are something that is whatever, just kind of routine anti-Zionist sentiment, although they will jump on that as well. Yeah. But I, I do think that it, it is a strategic error to, to pick your hardest converts and focus your attention on playing to them. And I also think that there's a strategic error in being so scared about censorship and these kind of blacklisting tactics from Canary Mission that you convince yourself not to say anything at all. It's a tough, uphill, huge fight that we're facing. But I do think that the right way to go about it is by strength in numbers, building solidarity, and rising above a lot of the noise on this. And that does take message discipline. It does take strategic thinking. But I think not to the extent that it actually chills political expression. I don't necessarily disagree with you either, Josh, actually. I mean, I think that's something I think about. And yeah, sometimes things make me uncomfortable too, um, even now. But there's a sense in which the more perhaps tone-policed version of it has been tried many a time and still, I mean, it is just gone after in the same way. And so the sense that like, it's not worth the time for the Palestinian solidarity movement to, you know, try to convince people who are like, you know, these kind of staunch opponents who have like a visceral opposition to most anti-Zionist sentiment. I mean, I think that sounds kind of reasonable given that, you know, if you're in the Israel studies department at University of Washington and you try to just say that the name of the region is Israel-Palestine, I mean, people will absolutely go apeshit if you mention the word Palestine. And so like, if that's the basis at which like some of these things have started. It's really a completely different language. They're not sharing a world. Well, that's the other thing that I've been thinking about too. And I thought about this a lot while I was working on the Lipstadt piece and kind of just delving into some of her approaches and kind of the liberal Zionist thinking and the way that a lot of people are talking about it, which is that just the frame on the liberal Zionist and Zionist side just has not been updated. It's like there's this frame that was like, it's like an Oslo frame, especially that's like very much like, you know, here are these types of narratives and like, we both need to make these certain types of concessions. And obviously there were issues with that frame then to, you know, lots of Palestinian criticism, lots of issues. That's the reason it, it didn't work. But like, there's just like, there was this like kind of two state sort of like liberal Zionist framework that developed in sort of like the 80s and 90s in the US. And these people are still talking in this exact frame. And that's not what's going on the ground at all. That's not what's going on with like the state of the occupation. That's not what's going on with the state of the Israeli government. None of the things that are actually happening on the ground in Israel, Palestine fit with that frame. And the, but these people are still using it. All the time. And I think that's a lot of what is symptomatic of the responses here. Yeah, Mari, I think that's definitely true. The kind of zombie Oslo consensus that's still with us and that has not been displaced. And I think for the most part, the reason, not the only reason why I think the Jewish establishment and the Israel advocacy groups are attached to this is that it is very effective. I mean, the thing that I wanted to say before about the referenda is that in 2015 with the, the Princeton referenda and also the current one, they weren't the kind of stereotype of old school BDS resolutions. Like we want the university to sever all ties with companies that do anything at all with Israel, which was like, I don't know, like 2005 to 2010 
version of BDS. They were very targeted about their companies that operate in the West Bank, or more specifically, one company that's articulated into one particular aspect of the occupation, like Caterpillar or whatever. But still, the Israel advocacy world is still able to say, this is about delegitimizing Israel writ large, even though the referenda were crafted actually to press on the Israel advocacy world's hypocrisy on two states. You should support this in theory if you believe in two states. Like, Why should you support a company that's profiting from operating in the occupied territories? And that that rhetoric has like not really proven effective. Still, the, 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 the contrast of the debate ended up being like, you're trying to destroy Israel. And so far, there hasn't been a successful rebuttal that's like, no, Israel, as it's currently constituted, is not a democracy, and you have to democratize the one state status quo. Like, there's that, that hasn't been able to like develop yet. Well, because that idea does actually destroy Israel as we know it. I mean, like, that's the fucking problem. There are real limits to like moderating both like the content of BDS resolutions and expression. If your thing is that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, frankly, like the framing of, you know, how certain things are said, like don't matter. You know, you see it in the NYU case, right? Everyone, or like at least the subsect is, you know, jumping on the idea of, of like the Zionist grip on the media. How is someone supposed to talk about the fact that the media is broadly in support of Israel, is broadly Zionist? If you say that it's Zionist, the read that everyone is making, uncontroversially apparently, is that, oh, these students secretly meant Jews. So you can't say Jews, obviously, because that would be anti-Semitic, but you also can't say Zionist because everyone will know that secretly what you mean is, is to reference Judaism. So in fact, you just can't talk about it at all. There's no safe right. way to say that the media supports Israel or that the media is is Zionist. No matter how much you you moderate your language, the only option here from the perspective of the Zionists is to just shut up, is just to not talk about this. I mean, like, just to like model for our listenership what it might look like to actually interrogate the question of like what it means to talk about a quote Zionist media is the fact that until now, I think almost every Jerusalem bureau chief at the New York Times has been like an open Zionist and a Jew, or the fact that there was a study done, an academic study that looked at pieces written about Palestine anywhere, like any major magazine or newspaper. And I think pieces written by actual Palestinians before last May were like in the single digits, essentially, while almost everything else was written by Israelis or Jews or or just regular people, but mostly Israelis or American Jews or global Jews. So like you have a situation where there is literally no comparison in terms of what people are reading and hearing and, and how able a certain kind of narrative is to get into the media. Again, we also are talking about how many publications won't even use the word Palestine. Again, they're speaking different languages. Like some people are coming with a lot of political education around some of these things and being very deliberate in talking about Zionism as opposed to Jews, and it just doesn't register. I just wanted to, I mean, I mentioned in the beginning how there are these groups who have been trying to use university code for a while to crack down on students and bring suits and like kind of force settlements and actually like Dylan, as you mentioned, one of those settlements plays into the current case at NYU in trying to get these students' scholarships revoked under this settlement. I guess like with what happened under the Trump administration with the federal government adopting the IHRA, I think that the sense 
when we wrote an article about this, Natasha Roth wrote an article about this back in the summer of 2020, was that, you know, this was going to chill speech and would have kind of an effect on the side of people just self-censoring or like administrations shutting down events before they could even get started, this kind of thing. But I'm wondering now if like we're starting to see the first real effects of some of this stuff. And I was wondering if you wanted to close by talking a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like a little bit still too early to know how a lot of these things are going to play out. I know, I don't know the details on this, but I know that, you know, at ASU, there was some repression of some pro-Palestine group where like the administration like thought maybe that they, or like they were agitating to to implement IRA, but it turns out like it hadn't been adopted yet. But now IRA has been passed on the state level at Arizona. And so like that may raise new questions. My sense is that it's a real issue and it's a real threat to the extent that that IRA is being adopted at the state level, because that's just another opportunity for public universities basically to leverage this in you know suppressing some of this activism. At NYU, it's like pretty bogus. NYU had not even adopted the you know the examples portion of the IRA definition, which are really what give it its anti anti Zionist teeth, you know, the, the text of the definition itself is like just pretty, pretty uncontroversial um, and has nothing to do with Palestine activism and stuff like that. And so the attempt to leverage that in the NYU case is like a total reach and NYU administrators would be really silly if they intentionally tried to bind themselves by that. It would be a, just a bogus reading of that settlement. But I do expect it to happen. As IRA is adopted in state houses, I do expect that to to play into the campus fights that are that are happening at public universities, and also to the extent that IRA is adopted by private universities, just you know, independent of what's happening at the state level. I do expect that to continue, and it does. By all indications, this is the direction that Zionist organizations are trying to push. This this is like the mo of the Brandeis Center. It's the two part strategy of agitate for the adoption of IRA, and then try to prosecute pro-Palestinian students under it. So we haven't quite seen a wave of, of these things happening, but it's definitely you know on our radar as advocates and kind of the, the direction I'm expecting Zionist organizations to try and to try and take these fights. Thank you so much, Dylan, and thanks everyone else for joining us today. This has been another episode of On the Nose. If you liked it, share it with a friend or review the podcast wherever you listen to it and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>